This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Um, This is a two-part talk on the Reformation 500. If you've had your eyes and ears open over the last uh, few weeks, you've probably realised that uh, Halloween this year is the uh, anniversary, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so uh, we uh, thought we'll uh, we'll press into that. And um, I actually am such a geek that uh, on BBC iPlayer this week, uh, when I, I had a free night, BBC iPlayer, I watched three hours of a German version with subtitles about the Protestant Reformation. So I've got far too much to say, and you're probably already thinking, this is going to feel a little bit like a history lesson. I used to teach geography. This might feel like a little history lesson. So some of you came and went, oh, I loved it last week, great, I'm coming back. And some went like, really? So it's a bit different from normal, because normally we'll take a passage out of the Bible and we'll preach about Jesus uh, so, uh, just to let me say, we're, when we're talking about Martin Luther, he wasn't Jesus, he's not the saviour. Uh, he said some stuff at the end of his life that you think, really, some stuff about the Jews. Uh, he's not altogether, but God did use him, and that's kind of handy, because, you know, some of you have got issues, and God uses you as well. Uh, and so, um, so that's it. And also, this is not an opportunity to say, well, aren't we amazing, and aren't the Catholics bad? You know, we had far, we had four, five hundred years of that stupidity, uh, and uh, so it's not about that either. Either, uh, but just hopefully you might help it. So I'm going to race through the be- bit at the beginning, be- uh, but just so those who were awake can kind of get up to speed. Okay, so um, yeah, so basically we're talking around the 14, uh, 1480. Uh, 1483 was Martin, when Martin Luther was, uh, was born, and he died at 1546. So we, that's kind of the time. It's kind of, it's the place called the, Reform, uh, the Renaissance. It's the kind of conjecture point, the age, end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the modern age. Uh, and so we're in that kind of age, time. Martin Luther was born on the 10th of November 1483 in what is now East Germany, uh, Saxony at that time. And uh, it's a big kind of time of change, 1440, massive piece of uh, technological improvement. I know we live in a time of technological change. This is like the, the internet of, you know, the, the kind of last thousand years. So Gutenberg, uh, Johannes Gutenberg invents the printing press. And so suddenly information that had to be books, that had to be written down by scribes by hand uh, on vellum, suddenly there's printing and paper, and it's like the explosion of information. Yeah. Uh, and, and okay, it's not like the time now, so we've got so much information, we don't know what to think. This is, they were information poor, few books, suddenly they get more books. So that's pretty critical. And also it's a massive time of change in terms of thinking. So Copernicus uh, uh, shocks the church and says that the, the sun is the centre of the solar system, not the earth. Big shock to them. And uh, also Columbus says the earth is round and not flat. Again, big shock. 
Uh, so all these kind of cultural changes, a guy called Erasmus was a philosopher, and he's basically uh, digging back to the uh, sources, Greek and Latin sources of, of lots of books, uh, particularly the Bible and other things like that. So, so there's loads and loads of flow of ideas. But the Catholic Church at that time was pretty stuck in this idea of what they thought about grace. Grace is literally God's favour to you. Uh, and so they had this idea of grace almost like a, 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 a big a circle. Uh, and you were born in sin. We would believe that in this church, that you're born a, a, a natural inclination away from God. And then what happened is you were baptised as an infant, and that as an infant, that baptism kind of cleansed you from all your sins. And so you kind of found yourself in this place called a state of grace. But the danger was that if you stepped outside, if you didn't do the right things, that you'd constantly be stepping outside this state of grace and constantly worried uh, about sin. If you died in a state of grace, that was not a good thing to happen. Uh, uh, outside a state of grace, that was not a good thing to happen. So you're constantly working with sin. So what you would do is you'd go to the priest and confess your sins. Uh, confession is a good thing. The Bible talks about confession, but actually the idea was you couldn't really confess them on your own. You had to confess them to the priest. And the priest would give you some some penance, something to do, something to say, or, you know, say, maybe say if it was a serious thing, you need to go on a pilgrimage, or you need to do some uh, community service, you know, so, so Wayne Rooney, when he's driving his car through the middle of uh, Cheshire, uh, you know, the court says to him, you need to do some community service. It was kind of like that, the priest would say, no, this is a bad one, you need to do this and this. So you do that, and that was called penance. And they'd forgotten the whole idea of repentance, turning from sin, and say, you have to pay for it. So it's a different idea of saying, I'm sorry, I turn away from that. It's actually saying, I'm going to do something to meditate. And that would bring you back into a state of grace. And then when you died, there was obviously some sins that weren't confessed and some things that weren't sorted out. So you had to go to this place called purgatory, uh, that, that was this kind of intermediate place where basically you'd get a really good thrashing for about 100,000 years to clean, cleanse you of all your sins, and then finally you'd get to go to heaven. Dig? Okay. Now Martin Luther lived in this time and he was worried all the time that he'd step outside this place of grace. You know, if he thought a bad thought or did a bad thing, he'd step outside this state of grace and he was worried that God was going to judge him. So the whole idea of people thought about God was God's job is to judge you. If you said, say, think God, they'd say judge. We might today think loving father or we might think other things. It'd be interesting to ask your work colleagues, what are they, when, when you hear the word God, what do you think? That would be a good exercise to do. But anyway, so, but when, when Luther, Martin Luther, this uh, uh, Catholic Augustine monk, when he thought about God, he thought, zap, I'm a bad boy, he's going to get me. He didn't think, I live in this state of grace, he was constantly aware of his own sin. So he, he's actually going to become a lawyer, uh, and um, obviously God zaps all lawyers and bankers. No, he zapped, he, he's going through this wood, and he, 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 there's a thunderstorm and he thinks, oh my word, there's going to be this, uh, I'm going to get judged by God. And he, a, tr- a lightning bolt strikes a tree and he shouts out, St. Anne, who's supposed to be the mother of Mary, I'll become a monk. His father's furious with him. What are you doing? You know, you're going to go and, um, and become a lawyer and now you're going to be a stupid monk. Okay, so he becomes a monk. And while he's a monk, he's just desperately trying to do the right thing. So he's doing all the things, a Catholic sacrament. Sacrament just means a way of getting grace. He was doing all the Catholic sacraments. He was confessing sins. He was taking Mass. He was doing all those things. In Mass, they believe that the blood, body and blood of Jesus was literally present. That you were actually literally eating the body, the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood. Well, obviously, we'd say this represents the body and blood. 
So he's doing that. But most of the time, he spent about six hours a day confessing all his sins. In fact, so so much so that, that his priest said to him, can you go and do something really bad and then come and confess it? Because I'm sick of all these made-up sins that you're worried about. So... One of the things that he, uh, he did uh, that was uh, like a way of grace was to go on a pilgrimage. So in 1510, he went on a pilgrimage to Rome. And he's thinking, if I go to, the, to Rome, that's where the Pope's from, that's where the Vicar of Rome, uh, the Vicar of Christ live. A vicar basically means the, the one who uh, mediates between us and Christ. In other words, you go through the Pope to get to Jesus. And he was the, that would be the high point of his spiritual journey. But he basically found that the church was a bit of a mess. I mean, people do that today. I listened to some stuff this morning. Uh, they had this little snidey thing about the Reformation on, sorry, BBC. And then they had this thing about kind of priests and child abuse. I think, why did they put those two together? I don't know why the media does that. It feels like we can never get good press. Uh, but he felt similar in what Luther thought. What is this like? There's prostitution, there's vice, there's corruption. People living in rich kind of spiritual leaders living in opulence. But also at the time, there was this thing going on called indulgences. So what would happen is you could... Well, let me explain what it was. So they were building St. Peter's Basilica. We'll go back, actually. You can see the picture of St. Peter's Basilica. They were building St. Peter's Basilica. It was a highly expensive undertaking. And they thought, we need to raise some money. Now, what had happened was that, that this idea of indulgences had happened. Right. So basically what happened is it started off when you went to the Crusades. If you went to the Crusades in the 10th or 12th century, you're a knight, and you're going off to kill the Muslims and get Jerusalem. They, uh, the church thought that's a really good idea. I think we'd question that now. Uh, that's a really good idea. But what happens if you're killed in the battle and you can't get a priest to give you the last rites? You're going to die outside of a state of grace. So that's going to be bad. So what happened is the Pope at the time wrote letters called indulgences that says, look, if you've got this letter, you can go and kill as many Muslims as you want. And if you die in battle, you're still going to go to heaven. So that's how it started. And then what they, they, they thought is, actually, if you're doing good works like uh, crusading to win back Jerusalem, you can get this letter. But actually, as it evolved over the centuries, you could pay a little bit of cash to get this letter that would let you off some of the, the bad stuff you'd done. Now, obviously, that's a, 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 a worrying thing. And then what happens is, finally, it got to the point where you say, actually, you can pay some cash for the bad stuff that your parents have done, because your parents that have now died are in purgatory uh, for uh, 100,000 years or whatever, and they're they're suffering. And if you paid some money to the church, you could get them sprung out of purgatory. So the little sort of sales jingle from this guy, uh, uh, how do you say it again? Johan, I was going to say that, sorry. Uh, Johan Tetzel, he said this, this is his little kind of sales jingle, imagine the adverts on the kind of medieval TV, as soon as the gold into the casket rings, the rescued soul from Purgatory Springs. So you put your money in and bang, your uh, friend, uh, your parent, whatever, goes out straight from Purgatory to heaven. And in fact, this came from an idea, uh, what's called a papal ball, which is a a decree from the Pope in 1476. I'll just read it so you just can get the idea. It's called Salvation Noster, which means our salvation. We wish by our... This is the Pope talking, this Pope Sixtus. We wish by our apostolic authority to draw on the treasury of the church and to succor the souls in purgatory who died united with Christ through love. And those lives that have merited such intercession should now be offered through an indulgence. If any parents, friends, or other Christians are moved by obligations of piety, feel the pressure there, 
if you don't do this, you're not very pious, you're not very holy, towards these very souls who are exposed to the fire, we'll feel the pressure there, of purgatory for, uh, for the expiation of the punishments which by divine justice are due. So then, in other words, these, if you give money, you can get these people out of um, hell. And he said this, the Pope said this, let them during the stated period of 10 years give a fixed amount or value of money and that would be for the repair of the Church of the Saints. And they can pay either in person or by credit card in the foyer. So this is what's going on. Uh, it's this kind of massive thing called indulgences. And Martin Luther gets really, really worried about this because he's been wrestling with thinking, I'm not good enough. He's become a, a priest by this time. In other words, overseeing a congregation. Uh, he's becoming a priest. And what he finds out is actually that, that, that people aren't coming to Mass or people aren't doing repenting of their sins. They're just kind of saying, okay, fine, I'll just buy an indulgence and I can do what I want. Now, it's interesting. It, 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 Luther thought this is a bit of a scam. I read an article about a guy who's on God TV. I'm not going to mention his name. Well, I probably will because it means like I'm... Sl- picking on everybody in God, God TV. Um, a guy called Benny Hinn, his son, wrote a, a, a really... Uh, his, sorry, his grandson wrote this shocking article about how, how Benny Hinn was basically saying, if you give your money, then God will bless you and heal you. And, um, and they do these amazing conferences and stuff. And I think there was an element where, where, you know, where Benny Hinn kind of knows God, but, but it, he said it just got out of shape. And the Benny Hinn's driving in a private jet. They're staying in the best hotels. Uh, and it became like uh, the, 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 the grandson says, this is just like a money-making business. And he says, somewhere along the line, my grandfather lost the story. So he wrote a really, really good book called Good Morning Holy Spirit about his relationship with the Holy Spirit. But along the line, it had just become this, let's make money. I probably shouldn't have mentioned Benny Hinn, but, but the, this idea that you can give money to the church and then that will let you off kind of sin is a long way from what really forgives your sins. And Luther's really worried about this. He sees it as a scam and he sees the popes are building basilicas. What happened, one prince in, in, uh, in, uh, in what is Berlin now, he actually bought... A, a, a bishopric, in other words, he bought uh, the role of bishop for 30,000, uh, whatever it was, ducats or something, and then he, he didn't have that, and he borrowed that from a, an Austrian banker, and he starts selling indulgences around near where Martin Luther lived to try and pay for him to become this, this bishop. Uh, and, and that was quite common. You could say, you know, you got loads of money, you could say, I, I'd like to become a bishop, and you'd put the cash in the pot to the, the Pope or whatever, and you could become a bishop. And Luther's really worried about this. Because he sees ordinary people thinking they could buy salvation. They could buy forgiveness and right uh, relationship with God. So he writes about this in what are called his 95 Theses. Theses. It's not. So this is what it says at the start. It says, out of love, this is what he wanted to do. Out of love for the truth. It's really important to understand that's Martin Luther's motivation. And desire to talk about it, elucidate it, the, re- the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and, uh, and Sacred Theology, an ordinary lecturer therein at Wittenberg, intends to defend the following statements and dispute them in that place. In other words, he wants to have a, dis- he wants to have a discussion. And he says, if you can't come in person, write me a letter. And he writes these 95 things, I'm not going to go through them all, but here's just a few just to give you the sample of what's going on. 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's interesting, at that time, they had a Bible called the Jerome Vulgate. Don't worry about it. But basically, they mistranslated, where Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They mistranslated that to say, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's a big difference, like I said. So do penances, do good works to earn a place in the kingdom. And they translated, repent had almost been forgotten. It was all about penance, like I said. So he said, no, 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 it's, it's wrong. We, we, it's, the whole life is to be one of living under God's forgiveness. And then he says, he talks about indulgences. Those preachers are in error that say a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. They preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. Those who believe that they can attain salvation because they've got bought these letters will be, and this is strong language, eternally damned together with their teachers. The Pope was one of their teachers. The cardinals and the bishops were one of their teachers. This is really great. Any truly repentant Christians have the right to full remission of penalty and guilt without indulgences. He's wrestling with this. He's saying the answer is not indulgences. Let's just give you a couple more and then we'll go fast again. Christians are to be taught whoever gives to the poor or lends to the needy does a better deed than one who buys indulgences. You can put that in modern times. Those who give to, 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 to kind of Christians against poverty do far better than those to give to TV evangelists uh, to be blessed. That's what he's saying. It feels controversial. If it feels controversial to you now, it is controversial. It was hugely controversial then. Christians are to be taught that, that, that if the Pope knew how these indulgence preachers were carrying on, he would rather that the Basilica of St. Peter's were burned into ashes and built up with skin, flesh and bones of his sheep. He's basically saying, if the Pope really understood how terrible this has got, he'd be better to build St. Peter's with your flesh and bones. And then this is wonderful, he says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel and of the glory and grace of God. He's still not quite got it, but he's saying there's something different about how you, how you become a Christian. It says, but this treasure is most odious because it makes the first to be last. So he's still struggling with, how do I make myself so nothing? How do I make myself good enough for God's grace? And then he finishes near the end, he says, Away then those who are prophets who say to people of Christ, peace, peace, where there is no peace. In other words, you buy these indulgences, everyone's got, everything's going to be fine. Whoa. So you'd think that, you might not think that's too controversial, but what happened was that Martin Luther's theses go viral. So Martin Luther's theses, he was meant to have this academic debate, and then what happens is the printing presses get going and they print these out. It's only like two sides, three sides of A4, whatever. They print them out and they scatter them all over the country. Nuremberg, Leipzig, Basel in Switzerland, and everybody's reading this stuff. So suddenly what happens is theology that was just for all the kind of theologians and academics, suddenly everybody's reading it. People are reading it in the pubs. People are reading it in the taverns. People are talking about it in the markets. almost like this. This theological debate kind of hits everybody. Now we, we, can't, we don't understand that because in our culture, theological debates don't hit anyone. But you've got to understand, this is like, um, you know, where Brexit's everywhere, isn't it, at the moment? You just can't turn on your radio without Brexit. What do you think about Brexit? What do you think about Brexit? Whatever. It's like that, but times loads more. Because basically the whole system of how the Western Europe was run 
was being questioned. And everybody's talking about it. Pope Leo at the time says, oh, it's just monks having a row, forget it. But actually, by the time they realise that everybody's reading this and everyone's thinking, oh, I wonder if the Pope's saying bad things, what about these indulgences? He, the, the Pope's defenders say, this is not good at all. And so what happens is, rather than say, let's talk about indulgences and how we got that out of shape, they say to Luther, you've got no right to criticise the Pope. You've got no right to criticise the Pope. They believe that... Uh, where are we? Yeah. Um, you, the, basically, the, the church argued that Luther was challenging its authority and the authority of the Pope as the vicar of Christ on earth. They believed Lo- Luther was challenging the Pope's infallibility. In other words, a Pope never makes a mistake. That's what people believed. And the Pope's right on the supreme arbiter of matters of faith and doctrine. Basically, what happened in the, in the church at the time... You didn't read your own Bible and decide, you know, what do you feel the Bible's saying. You would be told what to think by the Pope. And the Pope never got it wrong. So what happens, you've got this Pope's that created a tradition of what you should believe. And the Bible and what, pe- and, and what the Gospel said just became less and less. So it all became tradition. And they're basically saying, Martin Luther, you're attacking that very thing. Now, just in the, we mentioned this last time, that Martin Luther then has this spiritual experience that, that looks like becoming a Christian. Basically, he's looking at through Romans and he's thinking like, oh, God's justice is being revealed uh, to me. Uh, and, and he's thinking, I hate the justice of God because God's justice means I'm going to be punished. And he's reading and thinking, how, how, how does it work? How does it work? How does it work? And instead of kind of going and asking the Pope or whatever, he does a radical thing. He thinks it through for himself. And he reads in Romans 1.17, for, for in the gospel the justice of God is revealed, as it's written, the just will live by faith. And suddenly he kind of realises, oh no, God's justice is executed on Jesus. That the, the sins that he's committed have been put on Jesus. And Jesus has died in our place. And that we're justified, in other words, made right with God by believing that. And he's, he says this, he says, At once I felt I'd been born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. That's what it's like when you become a Christian. You might not be reading Romans, but what happens is suddenly the truth of what's really true about Jesus, it feels like, whoa, it all opens up. And you think, man, I, feel, I see the world completely differently. That's what happened to Martin Luther. He'd been saying there's something wrong with his indulgences. I don't feel happy with the way things are going. There must be something else. And suddenly, bang, he's in this tower, reads the Bible. It's so interesting that he reads the Bible to find the answer. Because that really shapes what we're going to hear as we move towards the end. So he says this, At once I felt I'd been born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of the Bible in a different light. The work of God is that which God works in us. He used to think the works of God, you've got to do good, 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 you've got to do good. And then he realised, no, God has done good. Jesus has done good, and that counts for me. He says, suddenly, the word of work of God in which God works in us is I exalted in this sweetest word of mine, the justice of God, with as much love as I'd hated it. The, this justice of God is the gift by which we are justified. It's called justification by faith, and it changed the way people thought about church. Okay, let's roll on. So by this time, they're starting to worry about Luther 
and they're saying, is he a heretic? What happened to heretics is not that they just got a smack bottom and had to do 100 lines. They would take them and burn them at the stake. In fact, they'd probably do a lot more than that. They might cut them in half first, or they might cut them with axes. They might pull out all their guts and spread it all around, hang drawn quarter them, and then burn them at the stake. And that wasn't good enough for them. So the, the, the one, famous, one guy that had been burnt at the stake was a guy called Jan Hus. Uh, he's from Czechoslovakia. I don't think Jan is here today or from Czech, so he's, um, he was from there, and he was burnt at a stake for saying, the Pope makes mistakes. We're going to burn him at the stake for that. Martin Luther's pretty close to, uh, to that. Let's see what goes on. So we're going to follow a few bits of pieces. Hopefully it'll uh, track with you. So the first thing that happened is in he- Heidelberg, there's a big discussion about is, is, is uh, Luther a heretic, and he argues this really brilliantly. He says, Luther argued that God's law in the hand of sinners is actually a hindrance to righteousness. Why? Everyone might think, oh, God's rules are the perfect way to make you a good Christian. But actually what he says is, no, that's the last way you become a good Christian, by trying to follow the rules. He's had a huge change of mind. He says, why? The person that believes it can obtain grace by doing what's in him adds sin to sin, so he becomes doubly guilty. People are deceived into believing their commitment to the law makes them righteous. In truth, they're only exacerbating their situation. They become sinfully self-righteous. What he'd realised, he'd seen people who'd done good things, done good things, done good things, done good things, and thought they'd earn their way to God. And they were just smug and self-righteous. And he said, this is not the way it should be. This is a lovely little phrase. It says, the law says, do this, and it's never done. You know that, don't you? I used to teach in a, 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 in a Catholic school. And I said, how do you feel about being a Catholic? And they said, I just feel guilty all the time. The truth is, we can feel the same. We can feel that we're never, ever getting it right. I need to try harder. I need to do this. I need to do this. And I'm never getting it right. Do this, do that, never gets you there. It says, do th- the law says, do this, and it's never done. And I've put it in bold because it's sweet. Grace says, believe this, and everything is already done. Isn't that beautiful? Well, it's like a, what, it feels like a cheat. You just believe in Jesus, and that's it, all done? It felt like shocking. It should still feel shocking to us. And it says, he deserves to be called a theologian, whoever compels the visible and manifest things of God, seen through the suffering and the cross. So he has this debate and everyone thinks, wow, Luther is way off. But young students and some priests are starting to think, I really like this. It's starting to get under everyone's skin. Let's move fast. Okay, so by this time, the diet, by the way, is not like, you know, I'm doing the paleo diet, I'm doing the Marie Colony diet. Diet is actually uh, the, the German word for the Reichstag or the German word for parliament. So, just, so he's, he's, he's told to come to parliament so, you know, this has got big, hasn't it? You know, imagine a parliamentary debate. They've invited some guy, uh, they've invited some, some guy from, uh, from Cheltenham who's, you know, is basically just a church leader in Cheltenham and they've invited him to parliament to explain his radical views. What they wanted to do was, uh, the, the Pope Leo wanted to invite him to Rome. And, every, and basically what was going to happen if he went to Rome was he was definitely going to be contemned as a heretic. He was definitely going to be burned at the stake. So what happens is Luther's starting to win some friends. He's winning friends among German princes and they think, no, 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 Pope, I think let's have the, let's have the trial in Germany. 
What happens is he has the trial in Germany, and what they say to him is, Luther, you've got to say no, you've got to recant about these crazy stuff, about saying the Pope makes mistakes, and the church is doing this corrupt thing, and it's all about Jesus, you've got to repent of all that. But he won't. Interestingly, the Pope, cha- the, the Pope saying, I'm, I'm, I never changed my mind, he changes his mind. He has a little discussion and says, oh, we need to calm these papal indulgences down. But basically they're saying, because you've disagreed against the Pope, you're in big trouble. By, 19, by the 15th of June, so just, what, three years later, Pope Leo condemns Luther as a heretic. Pope, I'll read it. It says, Leo X issued a papal bull or decree against the teachings of Martin Luther. It condemned Luther's teachings on salvation, which is what we just heard about, believing in God and that's enough. But its harshest and roundest condemning Luther's views of the Pope. It called Luther a heretic for saying the Pope, the successor of Peter, is not the vicar of Christ over all the churches in the entire world instituted by Christ himself. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, that hasn't been revealed to you by, God, uh, by flesh and blood, that's been revealed by God. And it says, and you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. Yeah? What the people had thought is, that everybody who followed in the line of Peter, the popes and everybody had followed in the line of Peter, they had that same authority. Luther says, no, 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 the words of Christ extended are merely to things done by Peter. It is certain that there's not a power in the church or the Pope to decide upon articles of faith. In other words, the Pope can't tell you what to believe. If the Pope is thought by great part of the church that he will not err, still it's not a thing sin for me to think he is. Okay? You're probably thinking, oh, this is too hard work. Let's get there. <coughs> Hopefully you're finding some theology in here and some interesting stuff in here that you can pull out. Uh, and, and I know it's different. You know, I know you'd, most of you would rather, let me just pause here, most of you would rather say, can you give me ten helpful things on how to live this week? These are helpful things on how to live this week. Because you're going to feel like I'm saved by grace and not by trying to be my best. The Bible is radically important to what I do with my time. So Luther responds, he's got the idea, he basically does a blog, he prints some pamphlets and he burns the papal bull. In other words, a papal decree, he gets it and he says, well, you've written all this stuff about me and he burns it publicly. He's like, come on then, game on. Luther's basically been pushed in a corner and he says, game on, let's, let's get it done. He says some really interesting stuff in these pamphlets. The first one, he says, is addressed, addressed to the German ability of the German nation. He says this, the laity, that's all you... Everybody, it was not a priest or a vicar, as the spiritual priesthood should enact the reformation required by God. That's huge. Because basically what it was, the Pope could tell you what to think and the priest was the only one who got to get, get you to God. You had to go through the priest to confess, you had to go through the priest to go to Mass, you had to go through the priest because you can get to God. And, and, and Luther said, that's rubbish. Everybody's a priest Everybody's got access to God. Everybody can minister God's stuff. That's why we say, you can bring your contributions. Anybody can come pray, anybody, because we think we're all priests. We can all serve. There's no holy person here, as you know, by if you know me well. The one who's the hero is Jesus, and we've all got access to him. That's radical. And then he says, the walls of the Romanists in particular should be brought down. Secular authority... Uh, has no authority over the church. That's what the church thought, and he thought, that's rubbish. The church is unaccountable. Surely the secular princes can say to the Pope, hang on a minute, you were making a mistake. But that wasn't allowed. 
And this nonsense, he says, you've got to get rid of this, that the Pope, only the Pope is authorised to interpret Scripture. So he's already blown that one open. And then this one, how how does this feel if you're a, a peasant? The freedom of a Christian man. A Christian is perfectly free lord of all and subject to none. That sounds hugely revolutionary. When 95% of the population were like poor peasants who just did what the, the, their lords say, what their landlords and princes say. A Christian is a, but a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all and subject to all. In other words, there's no lords and masters and there's no servants. We're all servants of each other. Man, he is turning up the flame, isn't he? So woman, he said, the spiritual authorities can input in the church and the princes can say something. And the next minute he's saying, revolutionary stuff. And then he says, he states what we've said already. Good works are, not nece- are necessary, but don't save you. In other words, you do do good things. It's good to do good things, but they don't save you. What matters is the inner man united to Christ as a bride is united to her husband. We receive all his benefits. He gets all our sin. Why good works then? Because we love God, therefore we're going to love our neighbours. It's massive, isn't it? So how are you going to do what's, how are you going to live what's right? You're going to live what's right because you put your trust in Jesus and all that's true for him. So this is the amp, ramping up. Let's get finished now. He goes in 1521 to this, uh, the parliament and it lasted for six, five, six months and he's, he's summoned by Charles the, Charles the, uh, the fifth who's, uh, who's become the Holy Roman Emperor. And he's summoned to this diet of worms and he's guaranteed safe passage. He said, look, we won't kill you if you come. Because he's saying, I'm not going to go, you're going to kill me. And he said, no, no, we won't kill you if you come. So obviously, when he first started, he'd been this relatively unknown monk. By the time he comes to the parliament in Worms, he's like this celebrity. Everybody kind of starts to love him. Peasants and princes, obviously the peasants loved him because of what he said about kind of being free, and the princes, because of what he said about the church, students of theology, German nationalists, because the Pope was basically running Germany, and he's saying, and the German nationalists are saying, well, the Pope's wrong, we can we can have our own German nation. Basically, the, the Holy Roman Empire says to him to recant. Luther says, I want 24 hours to reflect on this. Comes back the next morning, prayed through the night and read stuff, and he said this, I'll read it out, he said, I will not recant unless I am convinced by the testimony of, say it, Holy Scriptures. For I can believe that neither popes nor council alone, as it's clear they've erred and repeatedly contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant because acting against scripture and one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. He's thinking they're going to kill him at this point. And he says, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. He's basically saying, if the Bible doesn't say it, I'm not doing it. If the Bible disagrees with it, so what happens is, you put my Bible now, so you put my Bible out of the bag. What would happen is, if, you, if this is the Holy Scriptures, excuse me if I offend you, but I'm going to stand on it. The Pope was above the Bible. What the Pope said, he interpreted the Bible. What Luther is saying is, the Bible's above everyone. It's above everyone. What the Bible says is above everything. So if I do something wrong or stupid or sinful, 
then, and it's against the Bible. If I start to teach something that's not in the Bible, you can say, you are wrong. I can't say, you do what I say, because I'm the priest, I'm the leader. The Bible sorts everything. It's huge. And he said, you've got to be convinced for yourself out of the Bible. That's huge, because you were told what to think before, and now you've got to think, I've got to read this book and be convinced. I've got to love this book. I've got to love the truth in this book. So that's why we preach most weeks, sorry about this one, we preach most weeks out of that book. Let me just finish. We're coming into land now. We've got two more, two, two, three slides. What happens is, at the end of the Diet of Worms, he's condemned as a heretic. There's a big furore. Everybody's thinking he's going to be killed, but the Charles the V says, stop. I promised him free passage. Once he passes out of the state... You can get him, but I promised him free passage. He's heading out on a, on a horse and carriage out of, the, out of the state, and what happens is some highwaymen come down dressed as, in masks. They come down and they, they uh, attack him. They, they beat up his uh, people that are with him, and they take him prisoner. Everybody thinks, what's happened to Martin Luther? He's obviously a celebrity. What's happened to Martin Luther? And they think, he must have been murdered for being a heretic. But what has happened is a prince called Frederick the Wise, the Prince of Saxony, that's where Luther's from, whoops, um, he basically captures him and hides him in this castle. He says to him, I've, I've captured you, I've captured you because I don't want you to be murdered. And he locks him in this prison cell. Which you think, well, that's great, but obviously it's better than dying. Luther's locked in this prison cell for long periods and he start, he's, he's sick, he can't sleep, he's feeling, what have I done? I'm not sure, uh, whatever. And he goes back to the Bible. He's saying, I've got to go back to the Bible. So he's reading the Bible and reading the Bible and thinking, am I sure what I've said? I've started this crazy stuff. I've blown up, said sort of stuff about the Pope, blowing up the church. I'm a heretic now. People could kill me. He's having this massive doubts. And what he says is, the Bible's been the thing that set me free. But the thing is, the, poor, the Bible's only in Latin. That's no good. I like such a small percentage of people could read the Bible in Latin. So what he decides to do is translate, and this is one of the best things he did, translate the Bible into German. He sat down and in 11 weeks, uh, uh, Enos is suddenly, yes, the Bible in German. Uh, yeah, he translates the Bible into German in 11 weeks. And actually you've got to understand the German language is this kind of potted affair of different kind of dialects and different languages. And he kind of creates this kind of, German. He creates the kind of common German. And some of the phrases, you know, when we've got lots of phrases, haven't we, out of the Bible, and lots of phrases out of Shakespeare, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, or whatever. We, you know, we've got phrases from, from Shakespeare. I can't think of one that's in common parlance. But that has shaped the English language. Luther writes this Bible that shapes the German language. Suddenly Germany starts to feel like a nation. Suddenly Germany starts to feel like we can be our own people. He writes this Bible and they print it. Only 5,000 people could read. The population is much lower. It sold 5,000 copies in the first couple of months. I mean, this is New York bestseller number one. Blows it away. Everybody's reading the Bible. Because you basically would have a big Bible like in the church that was in Latin and the priest would tell you what to think. Suddenly everyone's got the New Testament, the first bit, took him longer to get the other bit. And they're getting it and they're going and they're thinking, I'm reading it at home. Families, only 5% could read. People were saying to their, to their priests, will you teach me to read? Why? So I can read the Bible. They're, I want to read the Bible. Now I've probably got 20 Bibles at home. 
And I don't think, wow, I want to read this book. This is the thing. I've got to read this book. This book's going to change my life. This book's going to change the world. It's like, I'll have a quiet time. A couple of verses. Tick, fine. I'm in a state of grace now. God loves me. Oh, I didn't read my Bible. I'm going to go to hell. You know, we, we, we don't have this idea. I'm desperate to read the Bible. It's like revolutionary. Landing now. So what's, what's happened? I'll give you a snapshot. Hopefully you might think, hmm, it's helpful. But let's just pick up what happens. So basically from, 19, from 1524, mayhem has happened. You know, he didn't plan it, but mayhem breaks out. Turmoil, religious, political turmoil. In fact, you could say, and I've talked to people who said it was the worst thing that happened. We had 400 years of people killing people. You know, if you think about the Muslims now, you have Sunnis and Shias, yeah? Two different types, and they've got a different view, and they kill each other. And you think, what are they like? Us Christians would never do that. Nonsense. We did it for 400 years after this. Some way, this gets out of shape. You know. So what sorts of starts to happen? Uh, the, Encur- the Reformation encourages priests and churches to break from Rome. It was like, who's the, tr- who's the true church? Who's the true church? I mean, you can play that now, can't you? I can talk to people from my network and think, well, we've got all our theology in line. And, well, that church there that does kind of infant baptisms, well, sorry. And that church there that they don't speak in tongues, I'm sorry. And that church there that doesn't preach the Bible. And you can start to think you're all the true church, can't you? But at that time, the Catholic church was the true church. And Luther's, some of Luther's teachings say, no, we're the true church. This is interesting. In 2000, in, uh, 2000, 1524 and 25, Peasants, stirred by Luther's teaching on the freedom of man, you're not subject to anyone, start to go and burn down castles and take people and kill them. There's like chaos. Luther thinks, this is not what I wanted. So he closes it all down and says, you mustn't do that, peasants. So some of the peasants carried on and did a big revolt, and he's saying, you mustn't do that. But what's happening at the same time is some of the German princes and stuff are saying, we can be our own nation. We can be a nation that's ruled by the Bible. That's not ruled by the Pope. We can be our own nation. A lot of the great stuff, I mean, some bad stuff's come out of Germany and they get bad press for it, but a lot of great Bible thinking come out of Germany. There's a rise in German nationalism. By 1530, the churches and the states were aligning themselves either for or against. The fact that Luther's completely said an end of it is, here's a monk, because monks weren't supposed to marry. He marries this, this former nun called uh, Katharina von Bora. She sounds like, if you read about her, she sounds like an absolute genius. She basically licks Luther into a serious amount of shape um, in lots of ways. But, but basically he marries, he says, I'm done with all this priest stuff, I'm done with all this monk stuff, I'm going to marry. So he gets married. Let's just finish. As the Reformation, sola scriptor, there's a, like a, a kind of a banner of the, of the Reformation, it means... Alone the Bible, Scripture alone. I'll just read what I've put. As the Reformation grew across Europe, the authority of the Bible replaced the authority of the church, uh, the Pope and the church tradition as the final arbiter on what we believe. The preaching of the Bible became a central part of the liturgy of the churches that followed Luther's Reformation. In fact, if you go around, if you ever get a chance to go to, to, into Europe, we went to Italy last year, if you go to a Catholic church in Italy... They have a really large altar, and like, and that's kind of separated with a screen from the people, 
Because this idea the priest can come in here and it's all about when the, the, the mass is the literal sacrifice again. So it's all about altars and sacrifice. And the, and the pulpit is like over where Ben's sitting and kind of on the side there. Sorry, Ben, to pick you up. Uh, a little bit over on the side as if, well, it's a sort of irrelevance and, you know, we might say a few kind of kind words. You do that in a Catholic church. You go to, to, to a, a Protestant church, say, in Germany, that there's no altar and the pulpit's at the front. In other words, the Bible is, is what's important. Now, we're saying we want to preach the Bible and we want to break bread. So, of course, we're the true church, are we? <laughs> so, the preaching of the Bible came central. And Luther taught this. It says about the Bible. I want to encourage you to read your Bibles this week, guys. The Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. He said, I'd like all my books to be destroyed so only the sacred writings in the Bible would be diligently read. I think that would be a good idea, wouldn't it? We don't want to burn books. I mean, that happens later in Germany, doesn't it? We don't want that to happen. But in one sense, what are we reading? What are you reading? If you think, what do I read this week? If you said, I'm going to read nothing this week that the Bible, that'd be an interesting week, wouldn't it? You know, I'm not going to go on Twitter and see how bad my football team are and feel bad. I'm not going to read that about Brexit. I'm not going to watch, I'm, I'm not going to read anything or watch anything. I'm just going to read my Bible. That would be radically different, wouldn't it? Luther's saying, that's what we should be doing. Now, interestingly, just down the road from here, a guy called William Tyndall translated the Bible into English in 1525. And he's burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. 1535, he's burnt at the stake. Still a lot of work to be done. Let me just say this, and then we'll break bread. Nobody's really worried about the authority of the church these days because we don't do authority. What's interested is that, that it now becomes personal feelings. So whereas before it was like the Pope over the Bible, yeah? And we're saying, no, the Bible should be over us. Do you know what's over the Bible now? Your personal opinion. Your personal feelings. Your personal ideas. I've had people say to me, God has told me this, this and this. And I said, well, the Bible says completely different. They said, no, but God's told me. And I've had this experience that trumps the Bible. Our danger with the Bible now is that we don't take the Bible seriously either. But we don't say in Pope, tell me what to think. We just say, I'll just go with the flow. I'll write into the pages whatever I want. And the difficult bits, well, I'll take that out. It's not like that page on... I'm not going to say because we don't want to get too controversial, but, you know. And so what happens is public opinion and your feelings are, are, are stamped on the Bible. Your opinions, my opinions, need to be shaped by the Bible. Our experiences of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, whatever, they need to be shaped by the Bible. I'm going to pray and then we're going to break bread. It's the last slide. Basically, the Reformation said, let's slim it down and let's get back to the Bible. So the two things that churches was, Luther was saying churches should do is baptise believers and take communion. So that's what we're going to do. We're not baptising any believers today, although it would be fun. Interesting what Paul says in Corinthians. Band, why don't you come back? Paul's saying, I received this from Jesus. We're doing what Jesus asked. This is not tradition or whatever. The fact we're doing it in here rather than around your dinner table is probably a little bit of tradition, let's admit that. It would be better to do it around your dinner table with your friends. He says this, 
For what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Again, probably one big cup. We weren't so health conscious in those days. Took the cup and said, um, This is the cup of the new promise, the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? It means basically if you come and take bread and wine and you're not aware and you're full of sin, it's not like you've got to work hard or take communion to get rid of sin. You need to say, God, I'm sorry. I repent of that. I recognize that I've been living like this. And I'm sorry. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat and drink the, uh, the cup. And then he says something scary. For those who eat and drink without knowing the body of Christ, eat judgment on themselves. So what he's saying is that this is, a, this is a remembrance of that incredible event where Jesus died for us and set us free. Not because we've earned it, but because he's done it for us. It's grace that says it's done. This is that event. But, but if you're a Christian, he's saying, if you're not a Christian, he's saying, that don't come and have this because it's not for you. Because you're trusting yourself. But if you're trusting Jesus, if you're saying, I, I believe what the Bible said about him, I'm putting my trust in him, I'm letting his word and his truth be over me and shape my life. I say, God, I bow the knee to you. It's your life I want. It's your spirit I want. It's your goodness I want. Then that's what we do when we come. Why don't you stand and I'll just pray. Just pray. Why do we say that? I don't know. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.